Hello, everybody. Welcome to Three Point Perspective, the podcast about illustration, how to do it, how to make a living at it, and how to make an impact in the world with your art. I'm Jake Parker. I'm not Lee White, but I am Will Terry. And uh, all three of us are, or all two of us are professional illustrators. <laughs> well, we've all together published about 75 children's books. We've worked for all the major publishers in the business, and we've all taught illustration at university art programs. That's right. Each week, we tackle a subject related to illustration from three perspectives. Sometimes we agree. Sometimes we argue. 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 This is hard to do, Lee's part. Mm-hmm. But every time you learn something brand spanking new, and today we have uh, a special guest, Doogie Horner. I'd like to excuse Lee White, who's out on assignment. He is uh, at a disc golf tournament, I think. No, we don't. We don't know something. where he's at. He's jumping on a trampoline or something. I yeah. think he slept in. No, uh, no, he is he is off doing something, but he will return next episode. But Doogie Howner, Doogie Horner, not Doogie Hauser, Doogie Horner, man of the hour, is uh, is who's joining us today. I want you to go check out doogiehorner.com. He is such a just a perfect website for anybody who is wondering how you should make a website for illustration. So that thing first. Go look at that. We've been doing these portfolio reviews where we look at people's websites and you see some websites that just need tweaking. They need a little adjustment here. His website is so dialed in and so good. So that aside, check out his illustration work, but also he's a comedian who uh, is, should we say, world famous, Uh, at least at one point reached just about the level of fame you could expect as a comedian uh, when he was on America's Got Talent. And he made it all the way to the final episode of that uh, for the season that he was on. Um, So he does stand up, but he's also an illustrator who illustrates comics. He illustrates uh, book covers and, and, or was a book designer uh, and, uh, and just all around nice guy. So check out his website check out dad max his comedy special that just came out which i thought was hilarious did you listen to did you get a chance to listen to some of that before this i did not listen to dad max did you did you see any of his his stand-up stuff oh yeah i watched a lot of it okay dad max is next though you put that on today while you're while you're working you're gonna get some chuckles um but without further ado let's go into our interview well before we get into our interview here's what you here's like one main takeaway I took from it. And you think of one main takeaway you took from it too, Will. Mm-hmm. And that is Doogie is more interested in maintaining, like it's more important for him to maintain a healthy, balanced lifestyle than it is to like, at least this is the impression I got from him. I don't want to put words in his mouth. That it is for him to like drill down and and focus so hard on career that everything like falls away right from that um and and just in the choices that he's made over the years where let's go down this path because this path fills me with energy it fills me with inspiration it feeds my soul i'm going to try that out go down that path maybe too far to where now it's stressing me out so i'm going to pivot a little bit and work on this other thing and his like career for the last 20 years has been finding that nice balance of of what is sustainable what makes me happy and what um you know actually earns me a living right mm-hmm. and and what's good for me as a father and as a husband 
and for my children. Mm-hmm. That, that was what really impressed me. I'm going to add on to that and basically say that, you know, in some of our questions, he, there's certain aspects of marketing that he's like, not going to do it, not going to worry about mm-hmm. it, not going to, not going to try to glean every penny out of every, every idea that I've had, mm-hmm. every piece of property that I've made, because I got to spend my time on right what's most important at the moment. And not every social interaction online is a marketing yeah. thing. Like yeah. it's just, here's or the thing like I was, you know, or I, like I was talking about monetizing some of his IP that he's giving away for free. Mm-hmm. And it's, I seem to get his attitude is like, I could, <laughs> but I got other things that's yeah. more important. Like, how do I yeah. get eyes on everything that I'm trying to do right now when I'm just trying to get done the important work? Right. Yeah. Right. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. Now let's get into our interview with Doogie. Doogie, great to have you here with us. Uh, I just want to say we've been looking at your work over the last uh, you know couple of days here in preparation for this this podcast and I want to know where like how did how did you come about <laughs> like how does how did you become you you're the illustrator who was also a comedian was one first and then the other one happened does one feed the other I'm, I'm just curious how that how that works well, I started out doing art. I went to art school at Tyler School of Art in Philly. Mm-hmm. And I majored in design. And I always knew I wanted to do books. So I love books. Um, but I tried making books and I wasn't a good enough writer or illustrator to do it. Um, so I started by designing book covers. at First at Running Press in Philadelphia and then at Quirk Books in Philadelphia. They're two independent publishers in Philly. Yeah. Um, and then during that time, I kept like trying to write and illustrate. Um, and then I got bored. Like, I don't know if you guys noticed, but it's just like so many hours at the desk, you know, like my day job, I was sitting at a desk all day and then I go mm-hmm. home and I just write and draw at my desk. And I, I was like, I need to do something to get out. Um, so <laughs> I was trying to decide, I was like, all right, I'm either going to, be a lounge singer or a comedian (laughs) those were my two ideas and i found out that there was an open mic like it's way easier to try comedy they will let anybody do it Mm -hmm. and so i went and tried an open mic and uh i really liked it and that's how i started doing it and that how many years ago was that was that i forget people always ask me that i don't really keep track of uh i'm not a big numbers guy yeah i forget i'm not sure when it was but it was a while ago. President. Was, maybe, <laughs> was he? I don't. Oh my god! I don't know what day of the week it is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. After time, I don't know what year it is. How old I am? I bet it was about maybe fifteen years ago. Did you 15. like? How do you just? How long did you uh, prepare for that open mic? Like, how do you even prepare for that? So one of the reasons I tried an open mic was I read Larry David's. It was some coffee table book about curb your enthusiasm. And Larry uh-huh. David was talking about the first time he tried stand up. And he said, he just made it sound so simple. He's like, I found out there was a mic. I knew it was a three minute set. So I wrote three minutes of what I thought was three minutes of jokes. Yeah. Went and told the three minutes of jokes. We'll memorize them. 
told yeah. them. The ones that got laughs, I kept. The ones that didn't, I either got rid of or rewrote. Mm-hmm. And then the next week, I did the same thing, and so on and so on. And so, and that really is just the process. Like you just figure out how long your set is. Mm-hmm. You write a bunch of jokes that fit in that time period. You memorize them, or at least half memorize them. You know, and then you just go up and tell them. And then you remember what did well and what didn't do well, and then you adjust. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then, so that was like the the nice balance to the 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 de- the desk job, right? Like, was that feeding feeding a certain part of your creativity that um, that needed to be fed? Obviously, yeah, I think so. I think like I I love drawing and writing because. You have a lot of freedom. You can do whatever you want. But I just don't like how antisocial it is. Mm-hmm. How you just gotta, it's just so much sitting. Mm-hmm. And the nice <laughs> thing about stand up is that you're out, you're around people. But another, a really nice thing is like you get instant feedback, you get a connection with people. Yeah. You know, if you're doing a show, even if it's like a bad show, there's only 10 people there or something, you know, they heard you, mm-hmm. you know what they thought of the joke. <laughs> whether they liked it or didn't like it. Mm-hmm. When you make a book, tons of people see it, thousands of people see it, but you don't know if they liked it or not. Like even if they write to you and they're like, I loved your book, it changed my life. It doesn't really mean anything because it's just words on a screen. Right. You don't see their life being changed. You don't. Yeah, you can't <laughs> wa- like, can't watch them like <laughs> read, reading it. <laughs> you like, That's a good part. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's nice. It's a... Uh, it's more like life, but it's still an art form, you know? Yeah. I I got to know. So you were on America's Got Talent and you made it pretty far. I have to know, like on the, I think it was the first set when you attacked the audience. Yeah. Was that, was any of that planned? None of that was planned. Wow. I just had been there all day. <laughs> so, I mean, I got there like, you know, I took the, you know, drive into New York City. Uh-huh wait there all day it's a lot of waiting there's you know setting up cameras there there's the hammerstein ballroom which i it was like two thousand people so everybody's got to get in they got to get seated they got to do all the stuff all the acts are going on i was second to last person mm-hmm. so the whole time the show's going on the green room was actually underneath the uh audience and so you mm-hmm. could hear the crowd above you it was felt like you were in the coliseum you could hear them like <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and um, you're in a waiting room with like jugglers and contortionists. So everyone around me is like making pigeons disappear and stuff. And, <laughs> and one by one they go up and the waiting room is getting more and more empty. And so I'm just, I was just sitting there all day. And then I finally go up and they booed me. The audience booed me like one joke in. Uh-huh. And I just honestly was like, you know what? I don't like you either. And if you think I'm just going to leave, I mean, like I have a microphone in my hand. Mm-hmm. Your voice is amplified. If you think I'm not going to say anything, if you think I'm just going to be like, well, I understand that's your opinion. I'll just leave. You know, like, why wouldn't I make fun of everybody? You know, right. it, plus you're from a, Philly. So and I'm from Philly. Oh, why? why not? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there was, but it wasn't a calculated plan to save the audition. Mm-hmm. or save my set or turn things around um i just legitimately didn't fight or flight didn't care yeah <laughs> and i think it too it's like that 
that audience, uh, you know, that's not a normal crowd either. It's not like a crowd that that goes to a comedy club. Like no. these mm-hmm. are these are really critical, hired people, right? <laughs> I don't think they're hired. I think it's like free tickets. Like you want to? No, I mean tired. I tired, not hired. Oh, tired. Yeah, yeah, they were tired, and and you got to keep in mind. Like I'm going between. Like I went right after the dancing Sarah Palin's. Mm-hmm. This was when Sarah Palin was in the news, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so it was like these dancing Sarah Palin impersonators, and then like guys in bear suits, and mm-hmm. you know, and there's jugglers and magicians and stuff, and then I'm just standing there in a gray mm-hmm. suit telling jokes of course everybody was like boo <laughs> right. yeah where's your bear suit <laughs> yeah um Mike, well, i was going to follow up like why uh uh why would they put you second to last was the, i mean obviously you did your bit for you know a producer or somebody mm-hmm. um why do you think like you were you were saved for last essentially I don't think they put any thought into it. I mean, oh, okay. I think they were just like, this is how many people we got and this is how much time we got. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, if anything, maybe they put me last because they thought I wasn't very good. or, <laughs> but, but I don't know. I actually never thought about it before. <laughs> Have you? Do you ever get recognized on the street for that performance? I used to get recognized all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. when I did it, mm-hmm. I was famous for a while and mm-hmm. i would everywhere i would go to get recognized and people would you know you're eating dinner and people ask to take photos and stuff and wow I mean, for a while there i was pretty famous so mm-hmm. w- that, and that that leads to my next question was that like your trajectory then you're like hey i did america's got talent i'm just gonna lean in hard to comedy and illustrations going to be like the side thing or was like, how did you balance that kind of stuff? So when I did America's got talent, I, I think at that point I'd only been doing stand up like four or five years. Mm-hmm. And um, I was working at quirk books, designing book covers mm-hmm. and I was basically designing books during the day and then doing stand up at night. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty happy. And when I did America's got talent, yeah, like all of a sudden I was like, famous and everybody told me they're like quit your job move to los angeles um but i didn't want to like i really enjoyed mm. my day job it was really gratifying i was working with great people like collaborating with them it was it was like a group collaborative environment where we yeah. all worked together we all kind of worked together on the writing and the design and the acquisition and I really enjoyed it. And I liked doing that during the day and doing stand up at night. And I didn't want to move to Hollywood and just, I like doing stand up, but I knew like what I would have to do is not just stand up. What I'd have to do is like, okay, try to get on another reality show or try to write a screenplay or try to do acting. And I don't watch TV, I don't watch reality shows. I had no respect. America's Got Talent. That's why I, I heckled everybody because I wasn't scared. I was like, I've never seen this show. I don't watch reality TV. <laughs> and so, I mean, once I did it, it was a really fun show and I actually liked it. But after I was on it, it's not like I started watching it. Mm-hmm. But kind of didn't want to. Everyone's like, this is your chance. You got to do this. Don't let this pass you by. Mm. 
but I, I kind of didn't care. I was like, I'm fine with just doing shows around Philadelphia. Ooh, did you hear that thunder? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> um, this thing's gonna is it really here. close? Uh, it's really close. This office is, my room's going to fill with these. Um, <laughs> but so I was happy just doing my day job, making books and then doing stand up in the evening, mm-hmm. uh, just around town. So I like, I, I wasn't even on Twitter when I was on America's Got Talent. People were like, at least get on social media. Like, I did nothing to capitalize on my fame just because I didn't, I didn't see a reason to, I don't know. Mm. So, but anyways, I basically did like equal amounts of, I've always kind of done equal amounts of illustration, bookmaking and stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the book designing, uh, you know, we go to your website, I'm just going to share screen right here. And, and if you're uh, listening, you can always get us on YouTube at uh, school of visual storytelling. Yeah. And these are really incredible covers. What's cool yeah. is, um, uh, you know, I am very familiar with some of these books. I, w- I wanted to ask you working for a publisher, what, like what makes a good cover and what, what makes a bad cover? Like, would you submit ideas and did at some point, did you just know like what was going to work and what was not going to work or, um, or was it always just like a, a shot in the dark? I never knew. I never figured it out. I never figured out like a formula. I mean, the one thing I always started with was like the concept, mm-hmm. like what's the idea here? I mean, designing books at Quirk was a little different than designing them at Penguin or not because most of our books were really high concept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so with a lot of novel covers, you're really just trying to communicate a vibe and you don't want to tell the person what it's about. Mm-hmm. You just want it to look good, but be sort of mysterious and interesting but with quirk books each of the books had like a concept like um pride and prejudice and zombies mm-hmm. it's a mashup or william shakespeare's star wars um you know or hope brides again it's a barack obama a murder mystery or mm-hmm. um my best friend's exorcism it's like a throwback 1980s horror mm-hmm. and so with the quirk books the main goal was to communicate what this book is i think more than most like novel covers or something like that Mm -hmm. um so my process was just like clear communication while also making it unique and visually appealing and i tried to make covers that didn't look like most book covers Mm. yeah you succeeded um (laughs) so for example like I mean, I don't, I want, I don't want to like, how would you work with an illustrator? I'm assuming some of these illustrations aren't yours. You're just in, involved in the design. Right. The- yeah. The only one of those I illustrated was Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Mm. And for that one, I found a painting mm-hmm. of that girl and then I painted the zombie parts. Yeah. Combine <laughs> them. Uh, I remember when that the- book came out. Everybody was talking about it. Yeah. yeah. Do I remember when my friend, so my friend Jason Rakulak came up with the idea and he pitched it and he, his pitch was Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. 
it just like said the title and went mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. I never knew at the time. <laughs> that was, was like, bitch. what? What do you? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, we take pride and prejudice. We add zombies. And everyone was like, what the? This is the dumbest idea. <laughs> but it's a New York Times bestseller. Dude, it was huge. Yeah. I was behind it the whole time. I was like, yeah, sold. Let's do it. Great. Um, um, did he also do Abraham Lincoln uh, Vampire Hunter or something like that? No, that so that was the author. So at Quirk, because we're a small publisher, a lot of the books we did, we came up with the ideas in-house. Oh. Um, so like Jason would come up with the idea and then he would find someone to do it. So Seth Graham Smith wrote Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and then went and wrote uh, Abraham Lincoln and I got some it. other stuff. But got the it. concept was generated in-house by by Jason. Mm. Um, That's such an interesting business model. Too. Well, we were small, so we didn't have a lot of money. So we couldn't, I mean, how most publishers do it is they wait for agents to pitch them stuff and then they bid. But if an agent's pitching you something, you're going to have to pay a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what happened with us though is because since we were a small publisher, we couldn't pay a lot of money. So generally if an agent was pitching us something, we knew they had already sent it around to all the big guys and they had all passed on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so our mm-hmm. best bet <laughs> was to come up with original ideas because then it was cheaper Right. Because it was our idea and we were just paying someone to do it. That that's buying really an idea cool. from someone. So like a hope never dies, a, an Obama Biden mystery. <laughs> like mm-hmm. so someone uh, uh someone throws, you know, an idea for that together. The the powers that be at the publisher are like, Yeah, let's 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 move forward with that. And then it's who's on the line to like make sure it happens who like so hope never dies might have been an exception i can't remember so that was written by andrew schaefer and i can't remember if that was his idea or if that was jason's idea okay um but generally like jason would come up with some crazy idea or another editor would and then jason would just look for an author that he thought was appropriate um or he already he knew a bunch of people that he, he could do stuff like Mm-hmm. Um, ben Winters, Seth Graham Smith, Andrew Schaefer, um, Robert Schnackenberg. He had like certain people that he knew could do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's interesting. So then going back to like cover design. So are you the one who's finding the illustrator who does this, you know, scratchboard style or, you know, this movie poster style or are you taking what they've already done and you're putting it in a format that's going to work for the book? So I always did a lot of really tight sketches. I would mm-hmm. basically illustrate the cover myself, but really badly in like mm-hmm. my style. And then I would find an illustrator mm. to draw exactly what I had already uh, drawn. I got it. Mm. So like my best friend's exorcism, my drawing looked exactly like that, but bad. Actually, the only difference was, so the girl that's being attacked by ravens, Uh I had actually had like, I think an explosion, a house or a fire or something. And the editor said, there's no explosion in the book. And I said, so what? (laughs) I was like, by the time they notice, they've already bought the book. If they've read it, they've already, (laughs) you can't can't do that. I was like, oh, fine. Um, and so I've when been, Shakespeare... I've been burned by a movie poster before, one in particular. Uh-huh. Oh, really? That, which was it? Um, 
it was uh ring no reign of fire uh the the future post-apocalyptic uh dragon movie uh-huh. yeah, yeah. With, with christian bale and, uh-huh. and what part so the movie poster has uh you know dragons everything you expect it's got the dragons it's got london that's on fire but it has specifically apache helicopters dogfighting against dragons and i'm and this uh, came cool. out before youtube i believe this movie came out before youtube so if you wanted to see the trailer you had to go to like itunes trailers to watch a trailer if it would load you know or see the trailer in the movie theater right uh-huh. and uh and so the poster carried a lot of the promotional weight of of getting people out to the movies and uh and so i'm like apache helicopters versus dragons sign me up bought a ticket <laughs> went to the movie not a single apache helicopter in that entire <laughs> film and i really i mean i i enjoyed the film it was, Do- it was, doogie doesn't care it's awesome he doesn't but, care yeah, we got you we tricked you we got your money got my <laughs> money too late and i've watched it several times since then uh so <laughs> but still still okay so let's talk about your your style here uh as well this seems so perfect for mm-hmm. uh i for your personality for the the humor that you have uh how did you is I, I think with any style, it's it's either something very deliberate and that the person like tried to, um, uh, you know, manufacture, or they just can't do anything else. <laughs> so it's very much like a part of their, you know, almost like a an accent, like a you know the way that they talk. This is the way that I draw. Which is it for you? For me, it's something that's evolved. I mean, my work used to be a lot more kind of scratchy and mm-hmm. stylized and i also used to vary my line weight more and use a lot more drop shadows mm-hmm. um but the style i'm using for invisible boy now i chose because i'm trying to make my style look more appealing to kids i feel mm-hmm. like for for many years i was pitching kids books that didn't sell and part of the reason was because my style looked like comic books mm. so that's one of the reasons i'm doing comic books i've always wanted to do comic books but i just wasn't a good enough drawer mm-hmm. to do it it's taken me 40 years to get good <laughs> enough to be able to draw the things you need to draw to do a comic but right. um i think my style just evolved naturally except in the past couple of years i have intentionally tried to take steps to make it look more like it's for kids because mm-hmm that's who I want to draw for. That's who I want to write mm-hmm. for. Right. And so what are like, what would make a, a, a drawing for a kid versus obviously this, I say this looks for kids. This looks, is this like the style you were going for previous? That's kind of how I drew before. Yeah. Um, Got it. For me, my kid style has been, I took, there's less line weight variation on my pen. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm using less drop drop shadows or no drop shadows. Mm -hmm. Um, And just a little simpler, a little rounder. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. that's more like my current style now. Yeah. Invisible Boy stuff. Which, looking at the preview of it, uh, 
you know, and reading some of it, it it's a I'm really enjoy it. I think this thing's gonna be mm. uh, a, a a success. When does the book come out? Actually, the first one comes out uh, spring twenty four. Okay, so we're maybe coming up on it. Eight months away, mm. six months yeah. away, something like that. And I'm working on the second one right now. I'm inking the second one right now. Yeah, it looks really fun. You, so you have really fun ideas. Yeah. Um, and I was looking at your web comics and wondering, like, how are you, how, how, how does the web comic help you monetarily? Or is it just purely for fun? Or like, because, because I, I have a lot of students that ask about doing web comics. Should I do one? You know, like how, how to monetize it and stuff like that. I started doing the webcomic. So like I said, my whole life I've wanted to draw comic books, but I was never a good enough artist because I would look at Spider-Man or whatever. And it's like, you got to draw skyscrapers in perspective, even just like telephones, like someone holding a telephone. I'm like, (laughs) Oh God. Or like doors opening, right. That's perspective. Or like Mm -hmm. a car. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can't draw this stuff. So I gave up on it, but over the pandemic, my family and I, we were living in Queens and we left Queens and we moved out with family in the woods in Berkshires. And we just had all this time to kill. And so my son and I started drawing comic books together Mm. and he would describe stuff to me. I don't know if you guys have experienced this before, but your kid's like, all right, I'll write it. You draw it, but they're writing it in real time. And so you have to draw as fast as they're Mm. talking. (laughs) right? (laughs) So I started drawing in this style, the style of these web comics of David's dad's movie, mm-hmm. um, where I was drawing just like really fast. And I was also trying to emulate my son's drawing style because I heard when you draw with kids, you should try to draw the same way they draw. Because if you draw like an adult, at some point they'll look at your drawings and be like, well, my drawings don't look like that. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm not good. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to copy his style and I was also trying to draw like a kid. And I realized that I was enjoying it. And also the comics that I was creating were still comics. Like they were still legible. They still worked. You could read them, even though I wasn't drawing them perfectly. My hands looked like squids. Mm-hmm. I wasn't using perspective properly. Nothing looked right. And so I realized I am a good enough artist now to draw comics. Like you don't have to be a you you have to do certain things, right? Your style needs to be consistent, mm-hmm. first of all, right? If you're really yeah. bad at drawing hands but really great at drawing faces, your faces can't look better than your hands. You have to lower everything uh-huh. to the style of the thing you're worst at, right? <laughs> and then also what matters really is the content. Right. The most important thing is the content. What are you drawing? What are you choosing to draw? I would say maybe this, well, the first most important thing is probably the writing, then the content. Mm -hmm. And the third most important thing, I think, is probably the acting. And so your character's expressions and their body language. And then you also have, like, layout and composition. But then Mm -hmm. the last most important thing is, like, how good are you? Right? You know what I mean? Like, like Jeff Darrow is an incredible comic book artist. His style is so good but a lot of his comics don't really have like a story right so like i love looking at them but mm-hmm. yeah shaolin cowboy is is more like an exercise in uh detail 
Yes. <laughs> then, Shaolin Cowboy is exactly what I was thinking about. Then that is story. But it's You're, beautiful to look at. Uh, but, yeah. This one know, really held my attention. This is a great David, David's dad's, dad's movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is what got me like, uh, I was like, wait, wait, wait. Who's this? Who's making this stuff? And I think you sent this to me or... Yeah, I sent it to you. You sent, you emailed it to me and you're like, hey, check mm-hmm. this out. And I read it and I loved it and I shared it on my newsletter. And then I was like, what else is this guy doing? And started following you and just paying attention. And uh, um, what whatever magic that you did here, um, if you're putting that into Invisible Boy, I think you're going to really have something that like impresses um, uh, kids and their gatekeepers alike, right? Like, cause let's be honest. Um, if you're making comics for kids, they're not the ones buying it. It's, it's the, it's the, uh, the teacher, the parent, mm-hmm. the librarian, yeah, something like that. What, um, I guess coming from, this is an interesting, you're in an interesting position because you've worked for a publisher and now you're making your own published books did, do you feel like that gave you any sort of edge and if so what what was it the edge it, it gave me a little bit of an edge because i worked in publishing i was able to get an agent more easily mm-hmm. um i got my first agent years ago so years and years ago when i was doing stand-up an editor asked me to write a book about doing stand-up and so I did, and the publisher passed on it, but the editor felt bad. He's like, I feel bad I asked you to do this. Let me get you an agent, and they can send it to other publishers for you. <clears throat> so, But the editor was the editor of Donnie Brasco, oh. and the agent he got me was Donnie Brasco's agent. <laughs> he was a mob. He only represented mob guys. He rep- represented Joey Bananas, right? Joseph Banano, Donnie Brasco, guys like this. So he's like a really tough so he calls me up he goes yeah i looked at your little book and um yeah i think i want to be your agent and i said okay well let me think about it and there was this deadly silence and then he goes what the fuck is there to think about i was like you know (laughs) great point what there is you're my agent and so (laughs) you sold my first book everything explained through flowcharts and he called me up on the phone. He goes, yeah, so I'm over here at HarperCollins and uh, they just made an offer on your book. And he told me the number and it was way bigger than I expected. And I was like, that's great. And he said, I told him, you double it. And I was like, what? why would you say that? <laughs> <laughs> and they did, but then they did. So, Wow. That's amazing. Because uh, I'm sure he, uh, he, he gave them an offer they couldn't refuse, right? Exactly. <laughs> So he was my agent for a little bit and then I left him and then I got another person and then I got another person. But the last agent I got, the agent I have right now is um, really good. And he's been, he's been really helpful to to me. Like he works with me. He, Mm -hmm. um, he's been a great agent and I, I know about him from publishing because I have friends that are editors and I was like, who is a good agent? And they recommended him. So that's been helpful. Um, 
And so then I, really quick though, how did you leave the first agent? So and how are first, you still alive? Yeah. The mob, yeah, yeah the are mob you guy. allowed to leave? <laughs> so my second book was a hundred ghosts and he didn't like it. Mm. Um, and so I left him because I liked it. Um, and, and then I got another agent and then that didn't kind of didn't work out. And so, um, well, can we unpack that just because we get that question every so often, like, how do you leave an agent? Is that, was it just as simple as an email? Was it a phone call? Was I just emailed them. I said, well, if you don't like the book, then I'm going to find someone else to sell it. Mm. He didn't even write back to me. I think his secretary was like, all right, (laughs) see ya. (laughs) Was, uh, there were no tears on his I, love, I love it you, you, so I think people overcomplicate things way too much and and really it, I mean it's business it's not like you, yeah, it's you, not, your best buds no it's not personal I mean I mean if you're with an agent for a long time it becomes mm-hmm. a mix of but it's personal it's like like some you know the, the person who shares the cubicle next to you it's yeah you know what I mean it's you, you wouldn't be together if it you weren't doing business. You know? Right. Right. Um, but a big thing that helped me from being, in, so another thing that helped me from being in publishing was that I designed books for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. So all my books, I am able to almost all of them. I've also designed. Um, mm. And so that's helpful that I can design my own books or when I'm doing a pitch, I can, I'm a designer. So my pitches don't look bad or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess I have some insight into publishing, having worked in publishing for a long time. Like I kind of know what the acquisition process is like and stuff, but I'm not sure if it so, gives me like a huge inside track or anything. What is the acquisition process? Well, at Quirk, the acquisition process was the editor would come up with a book idea, usually, mm-hmm. or some, or they find a, a book would be put, pitched to them. And they would bring it into acquisitions, which was a meeting we had maybe once a week or maybe every other week or whatever. And acquisitions... Who's in that meeting? I think at Quirk it was... I think it was everyone. Okay. Um, But because it was a small company. Yeah. Although, now we actually had a pre-acquisitions meeting called Blue Sky. And Blue Sky was like a no-pressure acquisition. So Blue Sky was like, you can just come with kind of like an idea. Mm-hmm. you know like you can just come and say pride and prejudice and zombies or it was like you could pitch stuff before acquisitions because in acquisitions you start to ask the hard questions like acquisitions like sales is there marketing's there everyone's there and so they would you get into like money and questions like that and in blue mm-hmm. sky it was really just the creative people it was just um editorial and design and right. so you would just ask the questions like do we like this? Um, how could we make this better? Um, what is sales and marketing going to say? Maybe you would sort of yeah. think about that. And then if it in blue sky, usually you'd give feedback. You could say, change this, change that. I don't like this. I do like that, whatever. And then the editor could take it back and like work on it for a little while. Maybe they'd work with the designer on it to try to change some things or, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then you would bring it into acquisitions, which was at our company was every, I think it was the whole company. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would pitch it. And if everybody liked it, we'd say, yeah, okay, let's make them an offer. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and production was a big part of it too. You know, production would be there and they'd say, usually they'd have like a, I forget if we did the PL then or if we'd do it later. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times we'd look at, all right, what's the PL? Like, what's the, how much are we going to charge for this? How many copies do we think we can sell? Mm-hmm. What's the package look like? You know, we really cared about like the package. So what's the trim size? Yeah. Because we didn't just do novels. Like, not all our books were the same right. size, and the same mm-hmm. format. Um, and so we'd look at the P&L because then you know, like, okay, we have to sell 15,000 copies of this or we have to sell 50,000 copies. Uh-huh. And that was a big part of it too because like if you if a book is like a little weird book, like 100 Ghosts, but it's cheap to make, it's not cost, we're not paying a lot for it, mm-hmm. the P&L is low, we might acquire it because we're like, okay, we only have to sell 10,000 copies. Mm-hmm. So let's pull the trigger. but if you're acquiring a book from an author and it costs more, even if you like it a lot, then you have to decide, well, okay, we would have to sell 50,000. Can we sell 50,000? Right. You know, it's a bigger risk. And so those are all the things we would discuss in acquisitions, that kind of like business type nitty gritty Mm -hmm. that we wouldn't discuss in blue sky, which was more just creative. So in in the publishing, are you like, is everyone kind of aware how books are selling? Like, hey, this is a really good book, and and it's it hit the certain benchmarks. Are those are there meetings about it or emails about it, or is it just you make a book and you move on to the next thing? You don't worry about what what happened. I mean, one of the great things about Quirk was that it was such a small company that like I was right next to John in production, and so mm-hmm. I could just like poke my head in and I'd be like, hey, how many copies? how many copies of what's it did we sell, you know? And he could like, Mm -hmm. look and be like, Oh, we're up to this many or, you know, he would tell us if we're doing a second, another printing. Um, so you knew how things were selling because all the departments were in close contact with each other. Yeah. I don't know if it's like that at other, other bigger publishers. I get the Mm -hmm. feeling it's not, Mm -hmm. especially not with like design. I get the feeling that a bigger publisher's designers just, design the book yeah and it's then, pretty compartmentalized like, that's it mm-hmm. yeah you know the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing yeah that's fascinating i quirk is a cool publisher like i do love you know they're they're quirky i mean they live up to their to their name <laughs> right like that was a big question we'd ask we'd be like all right this is a great book but mm-hmm. is this a quirk book right as a small publisher we kind of needed to do things differently like you couldn't acquire a book just because it was good yeah you had to be like well how what are we going to do with this that somebody else wouldn't mm-hmm. like how, why should we publish this as opposed to penguin mm-hmm. um, so you you got your your new agent which you've been with now for you're not good at numbers but it seems like some seasons <laughs> <laughs> yeah i forget we've been together now for a couple years um, and it's interesting, my old agent, my old agents, I would just, I'd give them a pitch and they'd be like, all right, let me send it around. And you know, if nobody buys it, nobody buys it. But my new agent, he's a good agent who's got like a reputation. And so he won't send around just any old thing mm-hmm. because the thing of value that a good agent has is their reputation, mm-hmm. right? When some good, some big agent sells something, sends something to an editor the editor knows this guy only sends me good stuff. And if I don't buy it, someone else will. 
But anytime they pitch something and somebody buys it and that book's a flop, that hurts their reputation. And so my new agent, I'm actually pitching more to him or as much to him as I am to the publishers because he doesn't want to send just anything out. He only wants to send out good stuff. Yeah. Um, and so that's the diff- one of the differences between him and my other agents that I think we're not quite as mm-hmm. committed. Yeah. Um, not quite as good. And then he'll also, so the, the feedback, the, the process with him is actually longer. And then once he goes out and sells it, that's the easy part. I'm like, right. although I've over the years, since I've been with him, I've pitched a bunch of, I pitched a bunch of picture books, kids picture books that like didn't, we couldn't sell. But mm-hmm. like I said, that's what I realized. I'm like, I think I should be doing comic books, not picture books. Cause my style, my style is not really a picture book style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my sensibility yeah. is not really either. We, it really seems been, like it would fit in with the, um, the middle grade. Yeah. 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 And we've been yeah, kind of critical niche. lately of the children's book world. And I, Lee even sent us an article where it's not just us, but it's, you know, the people in Kidlet are critical of it too, where it feels like a lot of what's being published is more self help therapy for adults <laughs> than <laughs> a book for a kid yeah, yeah. to really sink their, you know, their teeth and imaginations into. It's so depressing. It's like, yeah, you're buying this book. Like I saw some book recently. Yeah, they're like, "This is the Earth. Better take care of it." I'm like, "That's for me." What's he? Sw- He's five. Stop telling him. Yes, it's important that the oceans are full of microplastics, but he has no control over this. Right. This is for me, and so yeah. But yeah, the parents are the ones buying it. So we buy these books. We're like, I just I made a difference by buying this. You didn't even make a difference by buying the book. And then you're gonna field trip your kid about all these things they don't even know about. It's like, how about just, yeah, tell them like a really interesting story. This is their chance Mm -hmm. to just have fun, to develop their imagination. And you can still learn things, but in metaphor, in theme. Yeah, good story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. not It doesn't have to specifically be about adult problems. Right, right. Yeah, you don't want to give five-year-olds ulcers. Not not (laughs) yet. Not yet. Yeah, I agree. Hey, can I circle back to the to the web comics again? Yes, mm-hmm. I never answered your question. So I'm I didn't do them to make money. The only reason I posted them online was because like I said, it's the stand-up in me. Like I really like having an audience and I'm mm-hmm. a real like I just like sharing my art. And mm-hmm. if I just make art and put it in a drawer, I don't I don't en- I I don't enjoy that. I mean like I enjoy that for practice. Like obviously I have a sketchbook and I do that, but I do that for practice to improve my drawing. Mm-hmm. But a different part of me engages when I know I'm making something that people will see. Mm-hmm. I try a little harder. I think about the reader. I want to impress them. And so I did those web comics. I just put them up on Instagram and I didn't even do a good job of putting them up on Instagram. Like I just did it so people could see it. Um, mm-hmm. and I had no intent. I mean, I didn't make any money off it. I didn't monetize it, but in mm-hmm. a way I did monetize it because all those web comics were the incubator mm-hmm. for invisible boy. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, and David's, what you said about David's dad's movie, Jake was the same way I felt when I did that comic, 
I was really excited. I felt the same way I did the first time I did stand up. The first time mm-hmm. I did stand up, that first open mic, afterwards, I remember going into the bathroom by myself and just going in a stall and I was buzzing. I was so happy. Not because like the set had gone great, it had gone good. But I was buzzing. I was so happy because I realized, oh, I can do this again. Mm-hmm. This is like a new thing I can start doing. And when I did David's dad's movie, I realized that too. I was like, oh, this is good. It was fun to do, easy to do. I enjoyed it. It was creatively rewarding. And so I've heard Alan Moore said this, I think he said, if you want to make something really good, you have to do it. If you want to make something great, you have to do it without hope of reward or fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's what the web comics were. It was a place where I could just mess around, but I was sharing them. So I felt like I was not like had some accountability or, and you know, I mean, a reason for doing them. Mm. Well, I think too, um, there's a, I forget who said this, but it's like artists, their main problem isn't piracy, it's obscurity. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and if you keep everything behind a paywall, like if if I had to pay a dollar to read uh, David's dad's movie, probably wouldn't read it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <No>. like, <laughs> like, you know, maybe a collection of comics, you know, would, would be different, but, but it really does say something to just put something out there, shove it in people's face because, uh, that's that's really how you're gonna i mean that's how you're going to uh like you said get that feedback get that response get that um uh engagement for the for the stuff that you're doing yeah um and i see it i see the potential on print on demand on amazon and i'm like why isn't that uploaded to amazon you know david's dad's movie yeah because i don't have a platform i guess is the answer like it's good but <laughs> being good doesn't matter <laughs> you know what i mean like uh i mean it's weird it's like the things have changed so much like the most important thing these days is just how many people can you reach how many people mm-hmm. know your name yeah because there's so many options and so many possibilities out there like there's no shortage of Mm-hmm. content like the greatest ability you can have the thing that impresses us the most is just people know your name or you mm-hmm. have a high follower count and then the quality of what you're selling is almost incidental mm-hmm. or like i think a lot of times people develop that second they're like oh yeah. i've got a huge outreach uh now how do i monetize it i mean companies right. even work like that like uber just became profitable like they cared more about outreach than mm-hmm. even what they were selling i mean so how do you, I guess, I'm really curious about your, uh, and I want to be conscious of your time because of this question, but how do you balance promotion, creation? What is a typical week look like for you? Like, is there a portion that you're, you're devoting to uh, comedy at some, you know, every week, or is that more of a seasonal thing? I'm just curious, like, What's your operational, uh, how do you work operationally? There's no logic to it. Um, I just attend whatever needs attention. I mean, like, a so like a, ye- a year or so ago, I knew I was going to do 
another comedy special as soon as we found out that we were having another kid i was like <laughs> i gotta do another every time we have a kid i do a special because i'm like <laughs> i need some money <laughs> so and i knew i know as soon as the kid comes i'm not gonna have time or i'm gonna have mm-hmm. less time to do stand-up so yeah. as soon as i knew i was gonna do the album i was focusing more on comedy than i was before but i Got always it. do like a little bit of comedy but like yeah it it it, it kind of ebbs and flows. Like right now I'm not doing much mm-hmm. comedy. Um, partially cause it's the summer of the summer. We're just busy with family trips and things like that. Yeah. And um, you moved recently and we moved. Um, and we, I have a deadline coming up on invisible boy too. Like I've been pretty busy with the, mm. the sketches and the inks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just kind of, there's no like logic to it. It's just, I just attend whatever needs attention. I mean, I always do some stand-up just because I enjoy doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not doing any, I'll go crazy. Yeah. So, like I gotta, mm-hmm. it just I just naturally find some time for that. Um as far as promotion goes, I don't do any. Um I'm on Instagram, but I just do it like a person, not a company. Like I don't like I post on Instagram because I like posting on Instagram. I want to mm-hmm. show my friends. Hey, I just beat this video game, or I just did this drawing, or we're at the beach. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the the one exception is so I was listening to your guys' podcast, and you some listener wrote to you about trying to expand their reach, and they said they were going to try posting every day. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I could do that. And so I was posting a story every day where I would just show a random page from one of my sketchbooks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I stopped doing it when we started moving because all my sketchbooks are in boxes and like, uh-huh. I was just, um, <laughs> but anyway, so I don't really, I don't do any promotion. I know I should, and I'm supposed mm-hmm. to, but I just don't like it. <laughs> don't. None of us do. I know nobody does, but I just, I don't even know if it's, <laughs> I don't even know if it would work. Like, I feel like I could kill myself trying to do promotion. And instead of 3000 followers, I would have 7,000. Right. Right. And does that make a difference even as opposed right. to if I spend my time focusing on work and making great work, mm-hmm. maybe that's a better ticket for me than trying to make great content. You know, like if I make something really good, then maybe people notice that and right. that will lead to followers. Right. I don't know. Like Dave Pilkey doesn't have to post a single thing because he <laughs> made Captain Underpants, which was you know, it spoke for itself and Captain Underpants fed into Dogman and Dogman will feed into whatever he's working on next. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, a good strategy. That's such a good point. Like what difference and uh, what difference does 5,000 to 7,000 Instagram followers make? Uh, I think a news, I'm big on newsletters. I think I like your newsletter. I think uh, that's a good way to engage with people, and I always yeah. get good response from it. But you know, the the thing there is, how do you get people to sign up for a newsletter, right? <laughs> you know, and at, at some point, you have to like, you just you have to be offering something irresistible, I think, mm. and that's that's the key: make irresistible stuff. Or useful stuff like you're a yeah. great. Yes. I don't mean to embarrass you by complimenting you, but like you make great 
content like on Instagram and YouTube and your newsletter and like you're providing value and it's an extension of your work. And like I've learned a lot of great things, even from like your affiliate links. I clicked on those and I found a great pen that I still mm-hmm. use. And so I think if you're if you have something to offer mm-hmm. like you do, then it makes sense and it dovetails with your work. But I just don't think I have that kind of personality or my work's not like that, or I just don't feel like. Yeah. Well, the audience you're reaching with your uh, books, are, they're not on social media either. Right. Right. And, and to reach the gatekeepers, they may or may not be on social media, but um, they're going to be reached different ways. You know, they're going to be reached through a blog that someone else wrote that's curating stuff. They're going to be reached through, a, you know, a catalog that's highlighting stuff or an article that says, like, look at this. And so sometimes, especially in publishing, like, you need 50 really solid contacts versus 100,000, you know, to get the same effect, you need 100,000 you know, online followers or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And that might be, that might be easier to do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no disagreement yeah. there. <laughs> no, I noticed. Yeah. I just, all that stuff. I'm like, I just don't think about anything except making this stuff. Anytime yeah. I think of any of that other stuff, honestly, it just drains me. Right. Because right. the inspiration leaves the room. I feel like I don't, I also feel like I have so little control over that stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. also like, I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to be a salesman. That's not mm-hmm. why I got into art to be mm-hmm. a salesman. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> yeah, I, getting tired just thinking about it. Well, I'm, I'm knee deep in a Kickstarter, actually neck deep in a Kickstarter right now. And that, that month is all sales is, yeah. is what you're doing nonstop. And I had a dark day on Monday where I was like, I gotta, gotta, drive people to this we had a very low weekend nobody showed up you know five people showed up over the weekend to pick up a book and so i got to do something big on monday Mm. and spent two hours like making a reel that gets five thousand views you know like Uh you know and 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 a view isn't anything doesn't mean much right and i was just i was like i had to like really sit down and like second guess everything like is this what you need to be doing is this what you should be doing mm. and so that's what, that's the mid kickstarter blues i think why do you care that you had a bad day on monday you exceeded your goal didn't you exceed your goal by like triple yeah already? i have external goals and internal goals and uh and the external goal is is a little bit of a game like um, you have to set your goal your outward facing goal low yeah so 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 like my outward facing goal is let's get seventy five hundred dollars because i know if if it backs there then i could definitely get a a run of books made right Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, you know a small run whatever um but that's also a goal that you can double in a couple of days. And so then you can tell everybody how successful your book is because in marketing, success breeds success. Yeah. You know? Um, and so and so there's that whole game. But then internally, I look at my last Kickstarter and I'm like, let's match it and try to exceed what we did last time. 
And when I'm not matching those numbers, that's what, that's where I'm like stressing out and worrying and, and, you know, is this going to, you know, am I doing, what am I doing wrong? And and has the market changed and and all that kind of stuff. Man, you just got, this is why you're so so successful. You got this like (laughs) Nike mindset that I just can't. (laughs) Like, just do it. We it's gotta- exhausting <laughs> to work with Jake because like it makes Lee and I both feel like slackers, like lazy, yeah. whatever. Well, yesterday I was bugging <laughs> you guys all day, like, "Hey, we gotta get this stuff done. We gotta do this. We gotta do that." This, I mean, that's great. I really admire it. I wish I could be like that. I mean, I try to be like Gary Goldman is a really great comedian, and he had a great comment. He said, "He said I make goals, but I try to only make goals that I have complete control over." Mm-hmm. So he said, like, he did a special recently, um, I think it was the Great Depression, and he said, my goal was to make a good special. That was it. Yeah. You know, and he's like, because I can't really control whether or not it's successful, whether or not a lot of people watch it. Um, I think this was, you know, like, whether it even gets sold or whatever, you know, like, he's like, he's like, so I make goals like, I want to write three jokes today, or I want to mm-hmm. make a special that I am proud of that I feel is better than my next special, you know? So yeah. like goals that are still difficult to achieve, but right. which you have a hundred percent control over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's very um, stoic. So, like, you know, you, you, I'm, you know, I read off and on stoic stuff and it's all about worry about what you have control over mm-hmm. <laughs> and don't worry about what, what you have zero control over, you know, leave that to the gods or whatever. Right. Like, They'll handle that. You you yeah. make a good special or a good book, and uh, and I guess you know if I look at, I'm sorry this turns into a therapy session for Jake, but if I look at, uh, <laughs> I think when you know, I think about my mother, it's where it all really started. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if I look at the Kickstarter, like I am doing the best I can do on that, and and I can you know I should just leave it at that and not worry about it but i still worry whatever well the gray area is you do have control over it though because you can do sales you can do marketing Mm -hmm. by making that real you probably did sell more so that's the gray area it's like well you kind of do have control over that stuff you just have less control over it yeah 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 how how much do uh do you bill me for that (laughs) (laughs) that's a freebie you know what that's on the house (laughs) Good. Well, I think we, uh, we, you know, we, we appreciate the time. Did you want to wrap up with the one, question? One last question for Dean. Okay. I know you got bees to like eradicate from your house and <laughs> I got to wait till nighttime to dust them again. You can't do it during the day. They're on okay. the roof. I'll like get attacked and fall off the roof. <laughs> oh, no. Um, how, wait really quick. How far away? Like how far North are you? Like how far from you're in New York state, right? Yeah. So we lived in, we're from Philly. We lived in Philly for a long time. And then we moved to New York city and we were in uh, Queens yeah, in Sunnyside. And then when the pandemic hit, we left and we were living out in the country and we were like, you know what, this kind of isn't bad. <laughs> um, and at that point I, I decided, like I got used to, I couldn't do comedy during the pandemic mm-hmm. and I decided, I was like, all right, I'm going to stop trying to make a living doing comedy. I'm going to keep mm-hmm. doing it, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not going to try to make it like my primary job anymore because I found I was happier 
when I wasn't stressing about that, you know? Yeah. And so we were able to move out here to the country because of that. Mm. Like, otherwise we'd, that's the other thing. Like we were living in New York city and it's just like the rent keeps going up. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. my studio, I was still writing and illustrating books, but my studio was also my bedroom. It was a quarter of my bedroom. Mm -hmm. So you wake up, roll out of bed. There's your desk. Yeah. The rest of the family is just in the other room. (laughs) This car is honking. It's just like, it was New York city was just not a good work environment for my art and my books and stuff. And so special kind of person that thrives there, I think. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, so we were living out in the country during the pandemic and then we, my wife got a job. My wife teaches animation Oh wow! and she got a job teaching at Alfred university, mm-hmm. um, which is where we're at now. And it's a little town and it's like hour and a half South of Rochester, mm-hmm. kind of near like an hour from Corning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the area we're in now. Cool. Okay. So if you do area. comedy, then are you like going down to the city for that or i do some like i travel i'll do Uh the road like so i'll travel like pretty far but then i'll also for local stuff i just so it's funny there's one other comedian in town it's Uh crazy that there's one and he's good (laughs) and so he just like we just put on shows so we'll do shows at like vfws and (laughs) breweries and coffee shops like random places around here um and they're usually good actually Uh um and so he like so stoked to have you uh yes show up in town (laughs) yes he clung to me like someone had just thrown him a life jacket (laughs) (laughs) and i feel the same way i mean Mm. it's great um so yeah we do like local weird shows and then and then i do the road so Mm -hmm. It's not as good for stand-up as being in New York was, but it's definitely better for my books. Like I have mm-hmm. a studio again, and mm-hmm. I really miss that. Just having a room that is yours mm-hmm. when it's not filled with bees that you know you can <laughs> fill with your books and you got your desk and you got everything yeah. the way you want it. Um, you're you're really doing important. what... Are you familiar with Cal Newport? Uh-huh. Um, I, I talk about him every so often, but he wrote a book called Deep Work, which oh yeah, and I've heard yeah, of that. You, you probably and and another one called So Good you, They Can't Ignore You, and he has a podcast as well where he talks about that kind of related stuff. But one of his big things is um, lifestyle centered career planning, as opposed to career centered lifestyle planning. Oh, I see. And, uh, and uh, which is what a lot of people do, and a lot of people, especially this millennial slash Gen Z ish, or uh, not Gen Z, but Gen X generation, was really focused on finding their passion and making a career out of that. And he's saying instead of doing that, because a you could get burned out on your passion, you could get um, you could not make any money off your passion, right? He said, instead of that, figure out the lifestyle that you want to live and find a career that supports that lifestyle. And mm-hmm. uh, and that's exactly what you're doing, where you're like, okay, this lifestyle isn't working for me. I need more space. I need, uh, you know, this, this particular thing stresses me out. And I'm going to change certain things and pivot little places and, and adjust certain things so that I have the lifestyle 
and the career is like supporting that instead of everything's going into this career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I agree with that. Will, did you? Yeah. What was your? I have kind of a just the last little question. So let's say you had like life changing money you could make, right? Ten million dollars. Okay. But you could wave your magic wand and and you could choose to do it in comedy or in your new book series coming out, The Invisible Boy. Yeah. Which one would you pick? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's tough. That's I mean, a tough question. I think I'd choose it in the book because only because I have two kids now. And when you get big in comedy, you have to travel. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then also when you get big in comedy, it is, I mean, I experienced just it just a little bit on America's Got Talent. When you get famous, it, it, it's, it messes with your head. Mm. Even just doing stand-up and like crushing. Mm-hmm. If it, it really is unusual. It's like there's 200 people here and you're like controlling them all. Mm. And they're affirming you so much right Mm. and it's like the more you do that the more normal life can't measure up Mm -hmm. Uh, i got it and it's almost like a little bit too good it's a little Mm -hmm. bit dangerous yeah you know what i mean yeah and i'm if i was like some huge comic that made 10 million you know where you're like touring all the time and stuff i just um you'd be it doesn't You'd be just a, a bear to to live with. <laughs> no, but I don't know. It's a lot to deal with because you have to like separate. You're like, okay, that's not real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is real life. Yeah. But that kind of is real life. It gets confusing. It's like your like, lifestyle would be better if you just had the books just selling like crazy and you you had really good family time is what I'm hearing. And I can do stand up and like I I like doing stand up. I like making people laugh. But and mm-hmm. if it's a if it's some weird show at a coffee shop and there's fifty people there, but mm-hmm. I'm writing new material. Like what I enjoy is I love writing new material. I love thinking up a joke and you don't know if it's going to work or not and you try it and it works and that's yeah. exciting and it doesn't work and now you can think about it and I almost like this the small time. I don't know. I just. <laughs> yeah i'm not sure how i feel about it it's like a complicated but right. i it's like a batman and bruce wayne right like the the bruce wayne is the mask batman's who he really is and that could happen in comedy where you 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 feel like the comedian is who you really are when really it should be you know you have your stage per- person and then your yeah. life person and they can they can uh, sometimes switch, switch places. Well, and like we were talking about, like the way you worry about your Kickstarter or worrying about like whether or not people like your work or mm-hmm. how well you're doing. It's like in stand up, that's much easier to think about and to worry about, and it's hard not to. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's just really, if you're doing stand up, it's really hard not to be obsessed with getting famous and how famous are you? Mm-hmm. And no matter how famous you are, there's something above you that you want. Mm-hmm. and then like you can lose that at any time or things can change or it, it's just it, it's a that's a job where it's really hard not to th- worry about to think about what people think of you mm-hmm. and i like with art i can really just focus on the work mm-hmm. and making it good 
and then you can share it with people, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. just don't so. read your Amazon reviews. That's all. Oh, never read, <laughs> never read the comments in general. Never. <laughs> I've gotten some great comments on like YouTube videos. I, I post, it was just some stand up clip and someone was like, give up. You will never succeed. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm not the literal joker, right? Like what? It's such a dramatic, like you, right. you're not going to get away with this. Who do you think you are? You know, it's it makes some around. people think that they're happier when they are doing things like that. It's just bizarre. <laughs> so, yeah. Never read the comments. Just uh, print that out and, and put it across your, your, uh, your desk is you some... will never succeed. I was just like joking about toasters, just some random yeah. silly. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh sorry, man. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, uh, thank you for uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. This was good. Learned a thanks lot. Thanks for having me on. Learned a lot. Yeah, I heard you talking about earlier that you were thinking about interviewing people in publishing, like just doing a yeah. series on publishing. And so, if you want me to hook you up with, um, my friend Jason Rakulak, he was an editor. He was the editor at Quirk, and he started as an editor, and he mm-hmm. ended up becoming the publisher. Mm-hmm. And he would be a really good person to talk to about um, the editorial side, or like what it's like to being a, That'd be a publisher. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, all the people at Quirk, like the the production person, the salesperson, like I can give you lots of names of people that be willing to talk to you about the nitty gritty of all that stuff. That'd be cool. We have this fantasy, the three of us of starting a, a very low grade, like publishing company. Right. And every time we're, we're, you know, even to the point where it's like, well, what if we just had a logo and every time we self publish a book, <laughs> we have that logo. So it looks like a publisher, but every time we like try to figure it out, we're like, we're not, we can't do this. We're, we don't have, we don't have no idea what we're doing, uh, and so I really, you know, I'm really amazed and impressed with companies and people who who have figured that out and like, like understand that that world and that business and how to do it. The only difference between what you're doing and owning a publisher is acquisitions, mm. because you're doing everything else: your editorial, mm-hmm. your design, your sales, mm-hmm. your marketing. You're distribution. even distribution. <laughs> yeah. So you are actually a publisher, and the only thing you're not doing is acquiring other people's books, mm-hmm. yeah. and and then editing, designing, selling, marketing, and distributing them. So you actually already are a publisher. Okay. Well, there you have it. See, Jake, well, we don't have to do any more work. We don't have to do. Any more. You just need a logo. <laughs> just need, you're right. You just need, need a logo. logo. <laughs> uh, no, I. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's just one of those things where we're like, uh, wouldn't it would it make more sense? Because the the problem with self publishing is it's less so today, but there is this like uh, cachet of having a publisher. So yeah. instead of saying I self publish this, no, it's published through uh, Red Rabbit Press or whatever, and people are like, oh, who's that? What do they do? What else do they do? And really, it's just a logo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, okay, Doogie, thank you so much uh, for for meeting with us, and good luck with uh, the bees and the storms and and living out in the woods and your your thank magnificent you. magical life up in northern uh, uh, New York State. 
Yeah, I'm gonna go churn some butter right now. Actually, <laughs> really, Tap some uh, some trees no, and get not, some not maple syrup. Really. <laughs> we do make our own maple syrup, but we don't we don't churn our own butter. Well, I saw that in one of your uh, web comics. The you know the the syrup yeah. tapping. Yeah, I'm like I, you could tell where you live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. cool. All right, we'll let you go, and um, and then we'll record our intro outro for you. All right, sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a it was Thank a pleasure. You. Yeah, this was it was really good. Yeah, it was really good. What did you think of that, Will? Oh, it's so cool to actually meet someone who's done stand up. I guess I've met a, another guy who did, but the, someone that's an illustrator mm-hmm. and stand up. I've never heard of that combination before. Right, it's like uh, it, the the he embodies. He's a two spirit. He embodies the the introvert <laughs> and the extrovert. Right, like, right, and this, and like that's. That would be like a nightmare. Kick me out on stage, you know? Right. And I guess I, if you had time to prepare and you knew what you were going to do, but still like my biggest fear is the freeze up, you know, Mm -hmm. have you ever frozen up before? Like when answering a question or something? Yes. No, me too. I, I think I would, I actually wouldn't mind trying three minutes of joke telling, like just to, just to see if, if that gives me any sort of thrill or if I absolutely mm. hate it. But I will say this, there's been times where uh, working in an animation studio where they've needed someone to come in and just do scratch audio. Like, hey, we don't have the voice actor for this yet. Can you just read a line? Can you mm-hmm. can you act a little bit? Can you do something? Mm-hmm. And every time that I've done that, I've always been like, oh, that'd be fun. You know, I'll get up there every time mm-hmm. I'm in front of that microphone and there's a guy in the the box over there, you know, recording mm-hmm. and everybody, you know, there's a producer with the script and I'm sitting there. I absolutely fall on my face. I'm really? just like, yeah, I, I, like, like forget how to talk, forget <laughs> how to have any sort of like cadence to uh-huh. a speech. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just turn into this robot that reads the lines. <laughs> uh, but Doogie is, yeah, he is uh, incredible. Um, an incredible like communicator. And I think that's his like his strength is yeah. uh is whether it's through spoken word or through visual. Like mm-hmm. he uh has thoughts, he has ideas, he has a, a message he's trying to make, and he is um he is uh able to communicate that in such an effective well, way. He said that in the interview too. He said um you know, he kind of gave a ranking to what's important mm-hmm. and he put the creativity, you know, the, the idea first, mm-hmm. which is what we've been talking about a lot on our, on the podcast. Here, yeah. is that, um, he embodies to me, the, the artist that has something to say and has something to not only say, but to change the audience or his audience emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what you need. Like when I read his web comics, I identified like they brought yeah. me back to, the, especially the one, um, the dads. What is it called? Movies. Uh, dad, oh, David Dad's movie. David's, David's dad's, dad's movie. movie. Um, yeah, he brought me back to when I was a kid and some of the things I thought. Yeah, it, if if you want any, if you just want to get a good idea of of like that comic, that short comic takes three minutes to read gives you everything you need to know about this guy of where he's mm-hmm. you know his humor uh his heartwarmingness is that a way to put it and 
his just ability to to get that feeling and that message across. Um, all right, I'm gonna take us out here. Like, like I said previously, check out DoogieHorner.com and do check out his comedy special, Dad Max. And if you're listening to this in spring of 2024, he just had a book that just barely came out. So uh, either that that is a very specific um, call out to either time travelers or people who are actually living in spring 2024. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess send people beyond that, but whatever. Uh, I really know how to ham fist uh, outro here. So <laughs> here we go. Thank you for joining us, everybody. And thank you, Doogie, for joining us today. Three Point Perspective is made possible by svslearn.com where becoming a great illustrator starts. Ghosts have been Will Terry at, you can find him at willterry.com and at willterryart on uh, Instagram. Lee White, who couldn't make it uh, make it today, he, who's on assignment and he will return for the next episode. Uh, it's leewhiteillustration.com and leewhiteillo on Instagram. And I'm at mrjakeparker.com and at jakeparker on Instagram. Podcast produced by Daniel Tu. That's danieltu.co is where you're going to find his work. Uh, special thanks to our show notes wrangler, Lily Howell, our chief operations officer, Lisa Fott. Now, go draw something. <laughs>